Hello and welcome to Power Pros Podcast, episode 178. I'm your host, the Hoff, Chris Hoffman, and with me is my co-host and nemesis, Pete Mashad. Happy birthday, Nemi Cakes. <laughs> it's not my birthday, Pete, but <laughs> thank you anyway. Well, we didn't do a show after your birthday, so this is the first one. Okay, all right. Fine, I will accept that. <laughs> that aside, we are back once again to talk about what's going on in the world of Nintendo. It's been a few weeks since our last show, as you indicated. But yes, we are here to talk about what is going on when it comes to the latest game impressions, news, and also this week's big topic, which is going to be the 30th anniversary of some Capcom classics. Yep, maybe I was going to say Game Boy. We'll get around to a 30th anniversary episode for the Game Boy. But no, this time it is on some classic NES Capcom titles. All right, sounds good. However, before we get to that, let's kick things off by talking about a new release for Nintendo Switch from Nintendo, Fire Emblem Three Houses. Ah, uh, yes. I haven't had a chance to pick this one up yet, but uh, you have, right? Yes. Yes, I have. And uh, no, it is not an architecture simulator. <laughs> it is the latest in the long-running series of strategy RPGs from Nintendo and Intelligent Systems. But let me tell you, this one is actually significantly different than past Fire Emblem games. Oh. I mean, it is still a strategy RPG, but there's just so much more to it now. Oh, really? How so? Well, I mean, as you may recall from Nintendo's preview information about the game, you do start out playing a mercenary, and you're the adult son or daughter of the legendary mercenary Geralt. But then almost immediately after the game starts, you meet these students from the Officer's Academy at Garagamok Monastery, and for reasons that don't really make sense, your dad is like mildly pressured into leading the monastery knights, <laughs> and you're made a professor there. Yeah. And so you become the leader of one of the titular three houses. Basically, you are the you know Professor McGonagill to their Gryffindor or Professor Snape to their Slytherin, uh, <laughs> although there is no evil house in this game, apparently. Not that I know of so far. But in this case, the houses are the Black Eagles, led by Edelgard, Princess of the Edestrian Empire, the Blue Lions, led by Dimitri, Prince of the Holy Kingdom of Fargus, <laughs> Say that five times, Seth. And the Golden Deer, represented by Claude of the Leicester Alliance. And uh, which one did you end up going with? I went with the Black Eagles. I kind of liked Edelgard. She reminds me of a character from one of the past Sui Coden titles. And so for some reason, I decided, well, that's a good enough reason to go with her. So, yeah, I went with the Black Eagles. I think I saw them in concert last week. They were pretty good. <laughs> if you say so. Anyway, you get to this academy, you choose your house, and then suddenly the game like totally opens up. You can fully explore the entire monastery, or almost the entire monastery, in full 3D. You walk around, you talk to all the major characters, there are all these students you can interact with, plus there are the other professors, there's the Archbishop Rhea, whatever she's up to, and her attendants, and all these people to get acquainted with. So, you know, very unlike the past recent Fire Emblem titles. Yeah, sounds very deep. Well, yeah, and then beyond just wandering around and conversing, you can go fishing, you can perform some gardening, you can have a meal with some of your students, you can cook <laughs> food, you can attend choir practice, you could just go to the library and spend an hour reading up on the lore in there, which actually almost put me to sleep, but you could do it if you wanted to. <laughs> Wait, are you sure this isn't Harvest Moon? <laughs> there is a place called the Amiibo Gazebo. <laughs> Uh, did you, like, just get lost in the world of Amiibo Gazebo? 
I just love to say Amiibo Gazebo. It's a great name. <laughs> what about Uncle Amiibo Gazebo? He is not there, but the Amiibo Gazebo is, and I'm not entirely sure what it does. If you scan the Amiibo while you're there, you get items and unlockables, but I'm not sure, you know, how significant that is. But, you know, I scanned a few Amiibo. I got some stuff. I scanned the Chrom Amiibo and seemed to unlock some sort of special bonus item you probably only get from scanning Fire Emblem Amiibo. But hmm. anyway, yes, there is the Amiibo Gazebo, and that's just great. <laughs> but, yeah, I spent hours just exploring and talking and interacting with these activities. And like I keep saying, you just did not feel like Fire Emblem in so many ways. Plus... On top of that, it's not long before you start having to make lesson plans, which is basically just like allocating experience points, but you have to watch characters' motivation, you have to choose which characters to focus on with their education, you can use group tasks to build teamwork, and then sometimes, you know, like the characters come up to you during your lectures and they'll ask questions, and you get those right to boost character stats even further. So wow. there's all this stuff. You can even attend lectures from the other instructors to additionally boost your stats. So <laughs> So all that stuff is in there. And if you're thinking, yeah, this certainly doesn't seem like Fireman, well, you're right. All right, all right. So it sounds pretty deep, but is it fun? And is it still Fire Emblem? Well, certainly it does get around to having all the good stuff that is Fire Emblem, but it certainly takes its sweet time to get there. Like, I mean, there's so much they throw at you. Like, a lot of it I still don't quite understand. I've played maybe eight hours so far, and it almost feels like I'm still in a tutorial. Like, you know, I can barely just start to give my characters specialized classes. You know, I can give characters assignments that upgrade their skills for flying or riding or heavy armor, but none of my characters can use any of that stuff yet. So it's like, okay, what's all this stuff? You know, probably from what I've played so far, it's been like 75% lessons in exploring and 25% fighting. But yes, that fighting is indeed in there. And in a lot of ways, it is that traditional grid-based Fire Emblem goodness that you've come to know and expect. Although, in other ways, it's not. Like, the familiar weapon triangle with the sword and the axe and the spear is gone, as far as I can tell. What? And Yeah. And individual characters just have innate strengths and weaknesses. Wow. Also, you can now assign battalions to each of your main characters to boost attributes and give extra abilities in battle. And, this is a nice bonus, now, when you're on the battlefield, you can actually see who is being targeted by which enemies. So, you know, as you move your characters around, you can say, like, oh, now they're going to attack this guy. Wow. So it's like, okay, well, this character's weak. I want to move him somewhere else so he won't be attacked or whatever. That's a very, very nice touch, I would say. Yeah, because usually the way you die in Fire Emblem, somebody, like, cheap shots you because you forgot to move a unit. <laughs> right. One extra Or you square. just you know, didn't realize that that character would be the one that would be the target. Like, okay, it should everyone should go after that guy because he's close. But it's like, nope, we're going to run over here and just take out this uh, weaker character character just because we're a bunch of jerks <laughs> totally uh, another new feature though is you can now view and explore the whole battlefield in 3d at pretty much any time you like press the start button and suddenly yeah everything is in full 3d i don't really know how practical that is or how useful it's going to be <laughs> but it's certainly interesting and different and you know, you're still moving in basically a grid-based fashion there's a little you know mini grid-based mini map showing you what you're really doing in the game but you know just seeing it unfold, it's like, oh, wow, this is very different from past Fire Emblem games. Cool. I mean, that actually sounds like it would look pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty neat to have in there. 
One thing that is a little annoying about the battles, though, is the character icon placement. They're sort of distant from the characters themselves, so a lot of times I found myself clicking on the wrong character. Like, like, oh, there's the icon, let's click on it, but oh, that's actually a blank spot, or oh, that's actually a different character who's you know a hmm. space or two away. And so I would sometimes make mistakes because of that. But still, you know, combat does seem deep and strategic and fun. And though I have not used it yet, apparently you can even rewind time if you really mess up. So, yeah, it very much builds upon the strategic grid-based combat of Fire Emblem's past. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It seems like a fun option. As for the story, I really have no idea where it's going yet. You know, right from the beginning, there's this girl named Sothis who is apparently in your head. Like, she doesn't have a physical form. Is she imaginary? <laughs> is she, like, you know, some past character who you've reincarnated as? I don't really know. But, you know, she's up there. It's like, what's the deal with her? And then there's some masked bad guy going around you don't really know about. You don't really know what Geralt's backstory is. Are you really his kid? Why did he leave the monastery to begin with? Is the church and Rhea actually good or bad? You know, we know from what Nintendo has shown, there is some sort of huge war coming. But, you know, where it all goes, I really don't know at this point. But I wouldn't be surprised if it takes me like 100 hours to get there. This game just seems massive. Yeah, and honestly, to me, I, I don't know. This is probably in the minority, but uh, for me, that's just like a lot of time to commit to one game. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I like the idea of it, but at the same time, I'm a little bit turned off by hearing that. Well, I mean, this is sort of a word of warning for people who just want to get in there and just do straight, plain, pure strategy. This is not really for those types of players. If you want to just get in there and do the straightforward strategic gameplay, you should probably play another Fire Emblem title. But clearly, this game does have like way more depth. There's a lot more to it. It just goes way beyond what you'd expect out of Fire Emblem. Whether that's ultimately good or bad, it's hard for me to say at this point. And a lot of it does come down to personal taste, like you were saying. But I, for one, am sufficiently intrigued so far. Yeah, and I think ultimately I will give it a shot. I think I could almost imagine this game getting it digitally, so it's just always on my Switch so I can kind of pick it up and play it when I want to. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Not a bad idea at all. But uh, yeah, we'll see where it all goes from here. I'm certainly looking forward to spending more time with this game. By the way, I did get the physical version and the collector's edition, which comes with a 2020 calendar, which makes sense considering how much the school calendar factors into the gameplay, as well as a music CD, a steelbook case, and a surprisingly large art book. Like the art book was about twice as big as I thought it was going to be, so that's kind of cool. Can't really say if it's worth the extra $40 or not. You know, probably not. I haven't gone through enough stuff to say, but it's always cool that Nintendo does make that option available. So glad to add it to the collection. Yeah, and I feel like with a game like this, it totally makes sense. Yeah, they definitely know who their audience is in this case. <laughs> My friend got it, and he was he was kind of complaining about the calendar, saying that, like, for him it's a little useless because there are no actual events of, like, real things in real life in the calendar. Uh, I hadn't even noticed that. But, uh, you know, whatever. If you're super into it, then it's probably helpful. That's actually kind of awesome. I mean, I can find Easter on any old calendar, but being able to find all the characters' birthdays and in-game certificate dates in a calendar, that's pretty darn cool, I would say. Moving on to another new release, Mighty Switch Force Collection, which has come out on multiple platforms, including the Nintendo Switch. Ah, another one I haven't played yet, but uh, I have played the 3DS version, so how does this stack up? 
Well, this one matches up very, very well. I mean, it's a lot bigger than the original Mighty Switch Force on 3DS because this is four or maybe three, depending on how you count it, full games all available together in one place at last. You know, the series did originate on the 3DS with the original Mighty Switch Force. It migrated to Wii U with Mighty Switch Force Hyperdrive Edition, which is basically an HD version of the original with some extra challenging variations on all the stages. Then there was the sequel with Mighty Switch Force 2, in which you became a firefighter instead of a policewoman. And then last but not least, there is Mighty Switch Force Academy, which was a multiplayer-focused PC exclusive, but now it's playable on console for the first time. And so, add that all together, you get a lot of content there, like more than 70 levels, and that's a lot of time you can spend uh, with puzzle platforming action. Yeah, and it's pretty funny that it's now on Switch, so it's... <laughs> Mighty Switch yes. for Switch. Yes, everybody who makes that joke is now required to buy at least two copies of the game. <laughs> All right, fair. But yes, the big hook in the game is that you are able to switch blocks from the foreground to the background and vice versa, which leads to some really creative and challenging level design, especially when you have to use that capability in conjunction with platforming to solve puzzles, to smash bad guys, to track down the escaped convicts or to rescue the civilians who need to be saved from the fire. So yeah, it's a very interesting and unique gameplay hook and it holds up really, really well, even without the stereoscopic 3D. And even though I have played most of these titles, as I was going through, I would be like, okay, I'll just play one more level. And then, you know, like an hour would pass and I have suddenly played through like half a game or something. <laughs> but it really does have that kind of addictive quality to it. And I would say that is certainly a good thing. Now, do they keep the sound effect? So every time you switch, you hear... Uh, no, sorry. It just has the traditional... Uh, sound effect that the game always has. Right. Yeah, these are just the original games in their original forms for the most part. Okay. It does have HD rumble, though. All right, that's something. For me, though, you know, Mighty Switch Wars Academy is probably the most interesting inclusion because, like I said, I had not played that one before, being only on PC, and it features the entire level on screen at once, which means it's a much better experience on a big TV than it mm. is in handheld mode. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, you can still play in handheld mode. I went through a few levels in handheld mode earlier today, but man, everything is very, very tiny when you play it that way. Uh, but also the levels loop. So like if you fall through the bob, you come through the top, you go through the left, you pop out on the right, kind of like, you know, Pac-Man or yeah, something like cool. that. So yeah, it's just cool to be able to experience the game in that way. And it has multiplayer. So you can play through the whole thing in co-op or play these specific versus stages. I haven't tried out any of the versus stages yet but just knowing how it works and what the mechanics are and how you're supposed to you know rescue the people and then escape and you have to do that three times to win sounds really really cool so i am absolutely looking forward to trying that out in multiplayer mode i do kind of wish there was a way to zoom in when you're playing single player because you know when you're trying to do this precise platforming and stuff it can be a little bit difficult but still it's a very fun game hmm. very cool now each game is a little bit on the short side. They're designed to be games you can get through pretty quickly. Like I said, I got through like, you know, half a game in about an hour, but that is not a bad thing. There's no filler. The new play mechanics are introduced very quickly. WayForward calls it gaming concentrate, and I think that's a really great explanation for how much they're able to pack into a game <laughs> of this nature. Also, it's just a really great value, and you're basically talking $5 a game or $7 if you don't really count Hyperdrive Edition as being a completely separate title. But there are also these par times to beat, and obtaining those, even on the easiest stages, will keep you occupied for a long time, if that's your thing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like a pretty good value for uh, the $20 asking price. 
Yeah, I would absolutely say it is. Anyway, yes, I am a little bit biased towards this title, but it's cute, it's fun, it's challenging. My friend Stephanie plays the main character's voice, and uh, you shouldn't pass this one by. Yeah, definitely looking forward to playing this one. Okay, cool. Another title I picked up recently came out a few weeks ago, but this one is Blazing Chrome, the heavily Contra-inspired run-and-gun shooter with a very 16-bit aesthetic. Hey, I picked this one up too. Does that mean we're uh, kindred spirits or something? Uh, I suppose so, kindred Contra spirits. Yeah, we need to get together, play some co-op, because that's what this kind of game is all about, yeah? That's right. Kicking ass and taking names. And blowing up lots of bad guys. Yeah, it looks like a Genesis game. It even sounds like a Genesis game, complete with that uh, garbled voice clip, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's obviously intentional that they... Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, they want it to be like this homage to Contra and old-school arcade action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think they sell that aspect of the game really, really well. It really does feel like an authentic... 16-bit specifically sega genesis title it does and i think that's fantastic yeah i mean it like it almost feels like you just found this game like in the dirt that never got played and (laughs) right and that's like the highest compliment you can give it really yeah i mean it's very much cut from the same cloth as something like shovel knight where that you just perfectly nailed the 8-bit aesthetic and i think this does the same thing but you know for the sega genesis (laughs) yeah well plus for that run and gun style you know shoot 'em up Yeah, I mean, it does all that stuff really, really well, too. Yeah, it is full of high adrenaline action. You're blasting tons of enemy robots, regular drones, flying robots, ninja robots, (laughs) snake-like robots. You know, they all require their own specific tactics to defeat. And, of course, there are these huge bosses as well, all with these pads you need to master in order to survive. So, yeah, plenty of all that good stuff you want in a run-and-gun game. Lots of power-ups, regular machine gun, grenade launcher, flamethrower, pulse cannon. All that stuff is in there. Uh, tell me, Pete, did you pick the robot or the woman? Uh, I picked the robot. Ah, interesting, interesting. I played the robot as well. But I believe the two characters have distinct, different weapons that you can acquire. So I'm curious what it's like if you play as the other character. Hmm. Uh, what about the difficulty? You uh, jump in on normal or did you test out an easy first? Uh, I went in an easy first. I actually don't think I've played it in normal, but I just like that they uh, give you more lives and you have the ability to kind of start where you left off. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of game where, you know, practice makes perfect. You are going to die, you're going to die, and you're going to die again as you master the patterns. So, you know, just like there is no shame in playing Contra with a 30-man code on until you start getting good, in this case, I think it's great that you can start on easy mode and then play normal mode after that. Totally. And, and the fact that you can kind of pick up where you left off is really nice, too. Oh, the fact that you can save the game? Yeah. Yes, that is certainly an appreciated inclusion. I've only played through a couple levels so far. Yeah. I played through, you know, the first level when you're just going through that city, and then I played through the train level as well. Yep. And then, honestly, it feels so much like something that would actually have been, you know, released in the 90s. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. Yeah, and of course, it's got... Plenty of those sorts of classic style set pieces that we would have come to expect. You know, you can ride on a motorcycle, you can control a mech suit, and you can run across the top of a moving train. So yeah, all that stuff is really good, really fun. Pete, is it working as well for you as it is for me? Because I'm having a blast with this thing. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome. And I like almost can't wait to like play it multiplayer with somebody who, uh, you know, equally uh, shares the love for the, you know, that kind of run and gun style game. Yeah, agreed, agreed. But you really need some time to like sit down and like just play through it because you know it's going to take some hours to beat it. Yeah, like I said, it does take some practice. You will probably die as you are trying to learn all these patterns and master it. But, you know, the good thing is when you die, it's usually 
you know, not the game's fault. The control seems pretty right. darn solid, and you do have this evasive roll maneuver. I guess I have done that, you know, sometimes by accident, <laughs> but still, A, it's a really cool maneuver to have in there, and B, instances of that have been few and far between. For the most part, the controls are spot on. You can aim in eight directions. You can lock your character in place, although yep. I guess that's one thing I wish you could change. It's stuck on the R button, and I wish I could put it on the L button uh. since... You know, you know me, I prefer to use my fingers when it comes to the shooting <laughs> buttons, so... You are a total weirdo. Hey, having control options isn't that strange in this day and age. <laughs> hey, it wasn't even that strange back in the 16-bit era. I know. So that's one thing I would kind of like to see them add if they ever patch this game, but still, even without that, it's pretty darn great. I wouldn't be your nemesis if I didn't tease you a little bit. That is very much true. Uh, one thing I did appreciate about this is that you actually, it seems like there's a level select, so you could actually choose to go into any level you wanted. Right, that is indeed true. There are four levels to select from initially, and apparently a fifth level that comes after that. But yeah, I think the levels that I played were actually the first level and the third level, technically speaking. Hmm. Or maybe it's just that the second level was supposed to be harder than the third level, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it does have that feature in there. And uh, that is certainly appreciated. You know, if you're having a little bit of trouble, you can be like, okay, let's try a different level instead. So, yeah, certainly a cool feature. Yeah, it's nice. It makes you feel like you don't have to be like a master at it right away to see everything that it kind of has to offer. Yep, definitely. Oh, yeah, I will say I have one gripe that uh, I think there's one weapon you can get. It's like a grenade launcher where instead of just holding the shoot button down, you have to like hit it individually, and it's really frustrating. <laughs> yeah, some of the other weapons do require a little bit of extra skill to wheel, like the pulse cannon. The way that fires works differently as well. Again, practice makes perfect. So a lot of times the early goings, I would find myself just staying on the regular machine gun because it's very straightforward, you know, basically just fire and forget. So yes, there are those nuances to consider. Yeah, but I did notice you have the ability to switch that. So, um, you know, if you do pick up a gun that you don't like, you don't, you're not just stuck with it. You can use something else. Yes, you can always switch your weapon at any time. And there is that option to automatically switch to any new weapon you acquire or to stay on your current weapon. Oh. Uh, so that's another appreciated feature as well. Totally. Anyway, the game is challenging. It's got variable difficulty settings. It does have the ability to continue, which is always appreciated. But yeah, it basically has everything I would want out of a modern-day retro-inspired run-gun shooter. I'm having a great time so far. Yeah, I completely agree. This game is totally worth picking up if you are at all into this genre of games. Well said. Now, Pete, I know you've been playing another release that came out, I don't know, about a month or so ago that I have not had a chance to pick up yet. So I am curious about your thoughts on the Switch title, My Friend Pedro. <laughs> uh, yeah, I certainly have. and um... It looks insane. That's my thoughts on the game from just seeing it in action. It looks totally over-the-top insane. Like, you're just jumping through levels, doing a ballet of death and explosion and bullets and basically, to me, it looks like Deadpool the game, but with a talking banana. <laughs> well, you're not too far off. I mean, really what it is at its core is a level-by-level, -level, you know, gun-fu, arcade-style action platform game. Okay. You know, all the levels kind of have just like little bite-sized pieces to them, so you're never really playing for too long. Mm -hmm. It almost, in some ways, kind of reminds me of like an old-school, you know, the way the levels are designed, at least, is sort of like a double dragon or something, where you just have this like play for about five minutes, and then the level's over, and you're onto another level. Okay, I can see how that would make sense. But is it as easy to do cool-looking stuff as it seems to be from what I've seen in the trailers? Or is it like, oh, those are professional-level players? I mean, can you really do all this really cool-looking stuff easily as just a regular player? <laughs> well, 
you're right. I mean, it does feel like you're kind of crossing like maybe John Wick, the movie series with uh-huh. Tony Hawk Pro Skater, uh-huh. which sounds crazy, I know. But in essence, what you're asking, yes, you can pull these really cool tricks. The game relies heavily on slow motion. Yeah, I've noticed that. In order to, uh, you know, enact these like daredevil stunts where you are able to shoot enemies from across a level. Mm-hmm. And at times you can shoot multiple enemies and you are able to, you know, interact with the environment. Right. You know, there's frying pans and body parts to kick Ew. and oil barrels and exploding tanks and gas tanks and. You know, pretty much everything in the game is sort of the way it's designed, kind of like a Tony Hawk level, is just designed to be like executed in a specific way. Yeah, or like a Jackie Chan movie. Yeah, I, I, honestly, it is. And it's and when you do it right, it feels so cool and so choreographed. Yeah, that's the word for it. And, uh, and you really feel like, you know, this pro. And I found myself, like, when I first started, I got a little frustrated because there were. You know, there's things you know you should be doing differently, like a barrel you should be using to kill somebody instead of like shooting them just mm-hmm. automatically. But at least for me, I learned that as I kept playing through it, I got better and better at the controls. And, you know, after going back and playing some of the earlier stuff, I was like, oh, wow, I it definitely improved in how I dispatch enemies, I guess. Yeah, probably the more you play, the more you learn about you know how to interact with the environment. And it's like, OK, I see this. I kind of know how to use it. And uh, how to best get through the level, huh? Right. And then after you kill an enemy, you basically have a bonus meter. And it has a time limit. So you need to continue to kill enemies to increase your bonus. You know, there's a multiplier. Uh, And at the end of each level, there's sort of this rating that tells you, you know, on like a A plus through F scale how well you did. You making the grade? Yeah, which is cool because it does give you sort of something to work towards. You know, I always hate seeing when I get like a C on a level that I thought I did okay on. And then, uh, you know, you kind of think, oh, it might be worth trying again, see if I could like extend that combo a little bit. Yep, that makes sense. So tell me, how does the talking banana fit in? (laughs) So the storyline is very weird. You're basically being spoke to by this banana named Pedro. I mean, I don't think the main character talks at all really. Yeah, all your thoughts are being sort of conveyed through a banana named Pedro that Mm -hmm. sort of levitates behind you. Okay, that might be a first in video games. (laughs) Yeah, and honestly, the game is really funny. It makes some jokes about, you know, different things. You know, Deadpool is a very good reference because it does sort of feel like it breaks the fourth wall. Like, literally the second level, I think you, or maybe the third level, you end up going into... (laughs) you're like oh this area seems quiet and then all of a sudden you realize you're at like a hitman christmas party and Mm -hmm. they're like oh we're just about to announce who the new uh target is for this party and of course there's like a million dollar prize on his head and sure enough it's you (laughs) and so it's, it's just really funny there's like some moments where you're actually you know the dialogue is a comical there's a banana talking to you obviously it takes itself not too seriously yes it definitely sounds very quirky So in general, I did love this game, but I will say there are a few cons. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You know, I think the controls are mostly okay, but there are a few things like, you know, to execute the slow motion, you basically have to push the stick in, the analog stick in. Oh. And that's just not super precise, especially in handheld mode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. 
yeah, I never really like pushing in the stick for any move you have to do, you know, over and over again. It sounds like this game relies on that a lot. Yeah, I found myself like accidentally clicking it in when I was in the middle of a, a gunfight because you know you're just kind of intensely shooting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then there's also this dodge move in the game that totally throws off your shot. Basically, your character can just spin to avoid bullets, but mm-hmm. while you're in the midst of that the shots that you think are shooting straight are not shooting straight at all. They're like shooting all over the place. So you (laughs) kind of have to keep an eye on what your character is doing. Like if he's facing the enemy or if he's facing the opposite direction, which uh, isn't a huge deal. It's not really the game's fault. It's more just this interesting design choice that I don't know really how they would have avoided it because they can't make it look like you're shooting straight when your character's turned around. Mm-hmm. There's also, when you're in slow motion, some of the wall jumps and things you need to do can be a little tricky. I've noticed that like the hit detection on the wall is just a little funny. Like, like I think, oh, man, I'm definitely pressing the jump button, but you end up just hitting the wall and not jumping at all. Mm-hmm. So just some things like that. And then one other minor knock is that there's explosions in this game, but they really look bad. I mean, they look almost like orange polygon balls <laughs> that okay. show up on the screen. And like at first I was like, what is that? And it's like, oh, that's an explosion. <laughs> I really feel like it would have benefited if they did something like a 2D sprite to show the explosion, but they didn't do that. And I'm sure on the other consoles, you don't have the same issue. But it doesn't really detract from the fun. It just kind of, in general, looks kind of wonky. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. But overall, totally like this game. And I think, you know, anyone who's into, you know, sort of action, pick up and play, you know, I hate to say that, but it, it because the levels are like max 10 minutes, it's a really easy game to just kind of pick up and start playing. And I found myself not able to put it down after I finished a level because... You just want to kind of keep playing and keep getting that flow of like flying through the air and shooting guys and that's sort of getting into the rhythm of it, huh? Yeah, and there's also like some really cool interactive environments that you know, like puzzles where you're trying to like figure out, oh, I shoot over here and shoot over there and ricochet bullets off of this so I can hit that switch and there is some fun elements like that to it as well. But you're not shooting a Nintendo Switch, right? Uh, you are not. Okay. Oh, last thing I should mention is there are a couple levels in there that kind of break up the standard where you're on a motorcycle in one level or you're falling just like in slow motion this entire level, which is actually really fun. And it makes you uh, kind of appreciate it because the gameplay mechanics are so interesting that different sequence of events really change how the game is played. So, All right. Very interesting. Hopefully I can play it myself one of these days. Definitely worth playing. Okay, cool. That takes care of our game impressions for this week, but I do have some other impressions to share, those being of the new recently released Amiibo. Amiibo! This is basically the all-cute Amiibo edition. (laughs) We have the new releases from the Smash Brothers series of Pichu, Isabelle, and the Pokemon Trainer. Oh, that is adorable. (laughs) Yeah, more or less. Now, Pichu... My first thought of this guy is like, wow, he's really big for Pichu. I mean, he's not like huge or too big or anything. But when I think of Pichu, I think of him as being like a really small character. And he's definitely not really small. I mean, if he were, he'd feel really tiny. He'd feel like a ripoff. But still, he's like the same size as Isabelle, almost as big as Mega Man and stuff like that. And I'm like, wow, he is pretty darn big for a Pichu. But aside from that, you know, he's cute. It's a rather simple design. 
you know, it doesn't have a whole lot of complex uh, patterns or details on it, but it certainly gets the job done. It's a good representation of the character. The coloring probably isn't as vibrant as Pikachu, but I don't know, maybe that's intentional. Maybe in the game and in the Pokemon titles, he's not as vibrant until he evolves either. So uh, that is one thing of note. I find that kind of funny on the Amiibos in general, that like the sizing seems to be all over the map. Yeah, I mean, obviously you have to fit them in that little plastic bubble. They can't all be to scale. And even the Smash Brothers game itself, they fool around with that a little bit. Right. But yeah, I mean, you would think this guy would be absolutely dwarfed by someone like King K. Rule. And it's only like, you know, maybe, I don't know, two-thirds the size of King K. Rule, which just <laughs> seems, you know, still way bigger than he should be. Yeah. But that's okay. I mean, it's kind of cool that they uh, use the extra space to make him bigger. Yeah, yeah, totally. Next up, we have the Pokemon Trainer, who is probably my favorite amiibo from this batch. He's got a great pose with an outstretched arm and a pointing finger. And then on the other hand, he has his Pokeball. It's just a great little detail, especially the fact that it's actually shiny and red, whereas most of the coloring on the figure is more flat. Oh, cool. Uh, the face on the character looks really good. The texture on the jeans is a really nice touch. And uh, it's just a really dynamic looking amiibo. Sweet. And it works for taking photos with it and any other Pokemon, really. Ah, yes, I suppose that's true. And then we have Isabel, who, again, is a great representation of the character. Compared to the Animal Crossing version of her, this one has a much nicer pose. The level of detail really hasn't changed much at all, although the colors are just a little bit more vibrant. But the one thing that kind of detracts from this figure is that because of her pose and her rounded feet, she can't really stand up on her own or be rooted to the base by her feet. So there's this kind of bulky translucent piece used to hold mm. her up. And it actually takes a good chunk out of her left hip. Hmm. So if you're looking at her from the front, it's not really very noticeable. But if you look at it from any other angle, you can notice the semi-translucent piece very, very obviously. And it's like, well, it's kind of too bad they couldn't do anything about that. Yeah, I feel like I've seen that on a few other Amiibos. It is there in a few other ones, but I think it's probably more prominent in this one than it is any other Amiibo that's out there. Yeah, it's too bad. Anyway, unsurprisingly, I kind of like all these Amiibo. <laughs> None of these are like my favorite characters or anything. But uh, aside from that one little complaint about Isabel, I think these are all very well made. And again, excellent additions to the collection. All right, totes adorbs. <laughs> For sure. All right, let's move along here and discuss a little bit of news. First up in the news this week, well, we were just talking about Smash Bros. Amiibo, but there is other Smash Brothers goodness going on. That, of course, being the recent release of Hero as a DLC character. I'm talking about the hero from the Dragon Quest series, of course. And I haven't had a whole lot of a chance to play with this character yet, but from what I have played, I can tell you he is not just another sword fighter, that's for sure. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to check him out yet. What do you think? Well, it's really interesting and kind of cool the way he is absolutely an RPG representative. Magic and specifically his MP meter are very important parts of the character. Oh, cool. He can use a sword, of course, but his specials are almost all based around magic. He has fire magic, electric magic, and wind magic as the neutral side and up specials. And then he has a variety to sort of a random assortment of even more powerful spells as his down special. That can include a healing spell for you, sleep spells for your opponents, and like this massive explosion that... I didn't even realize what I was doing, but it was like this huge screen-filling explosion that used up all my MP and just totally blew away my enemies. 
Now, things, of course, can get a little bit dicey if you run out of MP, so managing that meter is sort of the key to success, but uh, it certainly makes him different and unique and uh, a lot different from uh, any other character that's out there. It's pretty cool, it seems. Yeah, that is cool. From my limited time playing the new content, I thought that the new stage that accompanies him was kind of sort of meh, but... In addition to the character in the stage, you do also get an assortment of new spirits to acquire, which includes the Slime, Drachy, Golem, Liquid Metal Slime, and Great Saber Cub enemies. There's also some giant flying whale character and also the Hero's Comrades, all to add to your roster. And incidentally, in addition to all this stuff that just comes with the character DLC, there are also some new separate purchase me outfits from Dragon Quest, which include Veronica's hat and outfit from Dragon Quest XI, a martial artist outfit from the Dragon Quest series, Erdrich's outfit, and last but not least, a slime hat to wear on your head. <laughs> uh, amazing. That feels right at home. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still haven't bought any of the Me Outfit DLC that was released last time around, and I still feel like it's kind of ripoff and it sort of should be included when you've bought the Fighter's Pass or when you download the character itself. Yeah. But, you know, a slime hat, that's pretty awesome. I'm definitely going to have to get that one sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> to match the one you have in real life. Uh, of course. Yeah, I haven't spent that much time with the hero just yet, but certainly... I like what I've seen so far. Look forward to learning a lot more about him in the days and months ahead. As do I. Another interesting bit of news out of Nintendo is that we finally have a release date for Luigi's Mansion 3. Nice, and it's very scary. Yes, very scary and appropriate. It's going to hit on October 31st. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't think they've really said anything else about the game beyond what we already know, but certainly I can mark that on my calendar for uh, filling up on candy and on Gooigi. <laughs> yeah, take it easy on Gooigi. That'll give you a tummy ache. I believe he's edible, though. Uh, I think he is, actually. That's a pretty gross thought. <laughs> it's better going in than coming out. Ew. <laughs> also, on the way from Nintendo, we have some new vibrantly colored Joy-Cons on the way. There is a purple and neon orange pair coming, as well as a blue and neon yellow pair coming. They're both hitting on October 4th, and they are the usual price of $80 a pair. Pete, do either of these have any appeal for you? You know, I do like that they're available. I think I'm content with my current uh, blue Joy-Cons that I have. Mm, okay, okay. I kind of like the purple and neon orange one, just because it reminds me of Wario. Totally. It also kind of reminds me of the GameCube. <laughs> yeah, that too. If it were two purple ones, I would definitely get it. But purple and orange, mm, I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence. I mean, I know that Wario is technically yellow, not orange. But still, as far as I'm concerned, this is Wario-colored Joy-Cons. Now, the secret is you just need to find somebody else who wants the orange set and then just buy the alternate pair. Oh, does it work that way? Yeah, supposedly. And I also saw recently a chart where it said that there are now officially 100 different color combinations of Switch controllers. So, Huh, are you kidding me? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, that's how I ended up with two blue ones. Huh, all right. Well, I will certainly keep something like that in mind. Very interesting. Also coming out in October, just a couple days before Luigi's Mansion 3 hits, in fact, is Super Monkey Ball Banana Blitz HD from the folks over at Sega. Yeah, this actually feels like it's about time that it's on Switch. 
Well, yeah, it's been a while since we've had a new Monkey Ball game on Nintendo Systems, and you know, this is not actually a new game. It is a port of a game that originally came out on Wii back in 2006, but even so, it's exciting to have more Super Monkey Ball. The series fits Nintendo Systems like a glove, and you know, as they sort of said when they initially started marketing the Monkey Ball series, you play as an adorable monkey in a ball. (laughs) What could be better than that? Totally. And, uh, you know, the Switch really seems like it lends itself well to, uh, you know, being a device that you could move around with gyro controls, potentially. Yeah, I mean, they've said that it's going to have, you know, special controls that are most suitable to the system. They haven't really said what all that means, (laughs) but certainly there is a lot of potential there, in my opinion. Yeah. Now, the only negative I see here is that Banana Blitz probably was maybe one of the least strong offerings from the Monkey Ball series. Hmm, is that true? It's been a long time since I've played the Monkey Ball game, so I don't really remember it that well, to be honest. Yeah, I thought the uh, GameCube games were much better. Well, that's probably a fair point. Uh, nonetheless, this does have 100 single-player stages, 10 multiplayer minigames for up to four players, new HD graphics, and new online leaderboards for Time Attack mode and the new minigame decathlon mode, where you play 10 minigames in a row. <laughs> We'll see if that all adds up to a uh, must-purchase title in the weeks ahead. But either way, I'm glad to see that Super Monkey Ball is coming to Switch. Yeah, I can't wait to go bananas. (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) You and your talking banana games. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Another cool-looking game on the horizon is The Outer Worlds, which recently got a new promotional video highlighting the recently announced Switch version of the game. This is a very interesting-looking sci-fi RPG with a sort of retro 50s aesthetic to it. The game is made by Obsidian, and it is set in a colony planet run by big corporations, and they promise that it's going to have a lot of player choice and consequence, and it looks pretty visually amazing. Pete, did you see the video on this? And if so, what do you think? Is this something you're looking forward to? I did. I mean, it definitely seems intriguing. Apparently, that's the same team that made uh, Fallout New Vegas. Oh, that would make sense. Or at least had a hand in that. Anyways, I'm always interested in getting a full-fledged RPG on the Switch, Especially being able to play it everywhere. Yeah, now it's interesting that they do call it an RPG, but from the footage I've seen of the other systems versions of the games, it looks a lot more like what I would consider a first-person shooter. I mean, I'm sure that does have plenty of RPG elements in there, but it looks like just a lot of, uh, you know, first-person blowing stuff away. So while I do love RPGs, I'm not quite sure this is exactly in my wheelhouse. We shall see. Yeah, I think it's kind of along the same lines as like Bethesda-style RPGs, where it's you know mostly first-person. It sounds like there's a lot of choices to be made in the game that affect yep, uh, future saying. decisions and all that. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case. But yeah, when you said it was made by Fallout, people are like, oh yeah, this totally makes sense. It certainly seems like a Fallout title. I mean, it also kind of reminds me of the Bioshock games, which I love. Right. They're like my favorite first-person shooters, this side of Metroid Prime. And I mean, I know it's not by those people, but the fact that it has a similar vibe to that actually does pique my interest quite a bit. Yeah. Anyway, we aren't quite sure when this game is coming out. It's supposed to hit October 25th for other platforms, and will hit sometime later on Nintendo Switch. Yeah, I'm also a big fan of side and I feel like this is kind of going to scratch that itch. So excited for it. All right. Very cool. That does it for news. Let's move along to a few listener letters. We have a little bit of backlog on letters with some responses to our last few episodes, but uh, let's dive in here nonetheless. This first one comes from listener Brian Booth, who is responding to a previous episode where he asked us about 
some direct Zelda sequels and games in which Zelda was co-protagonist. And he responded to that, you guys hit almost all the marks. I'm impressed, but not surprised. You are the power pros. <laughs> I feel like when he said that, I just flexed and put my sunglasses on. The sequels I had in mind were Zelda 2 and Phantom Hourglass, Breath of the Wild 2 being the third. Even though Majora's Mask and Link's Awakening feature the same Link as their preceding games, the setting, theme, and plot are entirely unconnected to Ocarina of Time and Link to the Past, so I don't consider them direct sequels. For the games featuring Zelda as a co-protagonist, I was definitely thinking of Spirit Tracks, but in hindsight, my other Zelda protagonist game probably needs an asterisk. I was thinking of The Wind Waker, so maybe Breath of the Wild 2 is really only the second game for Zelda, at least if you don't count Wand of Gamelon, which really, who does? <laughs> uh, yes. So Pete, I guess we kind of overthought it by coming up with uh, three each instead of two, <laughs> but uh, I say we did a good job, and I still think that Majora's Mask definitely counts as a direct sequel, totally. Same link, same engine, takes place right after Ocarina of Time. I stand by that one for sure. That's right. Air high five. <laughs> nice. Anyway, he continues on with his letter. I want to weigh in briefly on the controversy about Dragon's Quest in Smash. I really don't see how anyone could be upset, especially since Sakurai's team is obviously continuing the trend they started with Cloud in bringing really unique, fun-looking fighters to an already packed roster. Any level of analysis shows that the DQ hero is not just another sword swing fighter, but is more along the lines of Robin and Corrin, whose swords are just one facet of a really diverse moveset. It's all relative. You should see some of the videos of Japanese gamers reacting to Banjo-Kazooie. <laughs> they seem as nonplussed as many Westerners did to see the hero. Uh, that reminds me of one other thing. I did play through the standard, you know, short single-player mode with the hero. I was kind of hoping that the final boss was going to be Cloud so we could have a Dragon Quest versus Final Fantasy showdown <laughs> as the ultimate battle for those characters. That, unfortunately, is not the case. That would be pretty Just funny. Wanted to mention that. It would have been. It would have been. You get to fight the monster from Monster Hunter, however, which is pretty appropriate for someone from uh, Dragon Quest. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway, definitely some good points there, but let's move along now to the next letter from Noah Urbanovsky, who was responding to our list of Game Boy games we wanted to see ported to Switch. He writes, Howdy, Power Pros. You guys had a lot of great ideas for Game Boy and other handheld titles getting remade for the Switch. I wanted to offer another trilogy of titles that would be great to see, the Donkey Kong Land trilogy. Though they looked fine enough on the Game Boy, these games deserve a fresh coat of paint to show off their unique locales. The first Donkey Kong Land game would especially benefit from this, with worlds such as a large metropolis and a land in the clouds that haven't returned in later Donkey Kong games. The physics of the game could also be refined a bit, fixing the only real problem with these great titles. My ultimate dream is to get a Donkey Kong Country collection on the Switch, but a rebuilt Land trilogy would be just as fantastic. You know, I don't think I actually ever played any of the Donkey Kong Land games, but it goes to show you that there are a lot of games that uh, Nintendo's released that I've either forgotten about or are out there somewhere in the ether. So <laughs> interesting to hear this take. I, I like the idea. Yeah, it's not a bad idea at all. And uh, especially, I kind of forgot about that large metropolis. Maybe that was the original appearance of New Donk City. Who knows? Who knows? It just could be. <laughs> it very well could be. If they remade it, it absolutely should be. Our next letter comes from listener Blake Bickerstaff, who is responding to our best transformations list with a few suggestions of his own. His list goes Mortal Kombat Animalities and Babalities, <laughs> Altered Beast, NBA Jam, He's on Fire, 
Bonk's Revenge, Banjo-Kazooie, the Mario Kart 8 vehicles, the Purple Monster in Zombies Ate My Neighbors, and the switch from 2D to 3D worlds in Paper Mario. <laughs> yeah, these are actually all really solid, but none that I've ever would have thought of. <laughs> yeah, I think they're all pretty good picks as well, even though I don't really remember the transformations in Bonk's Revenge. And I'm not sure that the He's on Fire and NBA Jam counts. <laughs> I mean, if I recall correctly, the ball just bursts into flames. I don't really call that a transformation. It's more like emulation. But uh, regardless, there's some really good stuff on this list, especially like Altered Beast. I kind of am upset I didn't think about that one before. But yeah, good list. Thanks for writing in, Blake. Well, Bonk, Bonk literally just turns into a giant Bonk. Oh, does he do that in that game? I'm pretty sure, but maybe I'm wrong. I know he starts like, you know, spewing stuff from his head, but I'm not any sort of bonkologist or anything <laughs> like that. So guess I'll we'll have to replay him one of these days. That's just bonk. All right. I think it is time for us to close up the mailbag and then take Why an admission. Why don't you just hold your horses there, buddy? Oh, is there a problem, Pete? Do you not like me closing up the mailbag properly or something like that? Are you an angry mailman? Well, before you go to intermission, I want to uh, stop you for uh, a segment that we like to do. Oh, and what segment is that? It's called Hassle the Hop. Oh, yeah, right. Darn, I was hoping you forgot after not having a show for a couple weeks. I nearly did. That's true, you almost did. (laughs) Okay, all right, let's do it then. Let's get the show on the road. What do you got for me this week? All right. Dear Video Game Professor Hoffman. Yes? If you could have dinner with three characters from the Nintendo universe, who would it be? Oh, boy. Wow, that's a challenging question. Now, does it have to be all Nintendo first-party characters? Nah, just just anyone on a Nintendo platform. Okay. All right. Well, let's see here. First of all, and I suppose this is obvious to anyone who's listened to the show, I would have to go with Mike Hagar. <laughs> Duh. You know, not only is he a, a great man with a fine mustache and the greatest video game politician who ever lived. Plus, he'd probably bring some street meat. Exactly. He could just have to punch open, you know, a gas canister or a telephone booth or whatever, and boom, there we go, dinner is served. So he would definitely (laughs) be on the list. I think Bowser would be on the list. I would certainly like to have the opportunity to maybe share a meal and converse with him at length, Uh, maybe find out about his long-buried family childhood traumas that have driven him to, uh, to do such deeds to the Mushroom Kingdom. I'd like to learn more about that. I think he could use a little therapy from me that would probably go a long way. Yeah, that's fair. And then I guess for my third one, I would go with, uh, tentatively, Professor Late. Oh, I see. I'm sure that after we had our meal, I'd feel like a complete idiot. But uh, nonetheless, I think it would be uh, interesting to be able to have a chat and uh, tea time with him. Now, would this be all three characters together or would they be separate? Because I really do enjoy the idea of Professor Layton having tea with Mike Hagar and King Bowser. <laughs> I, oh yeah, they'd be all together. Okay, yeah, then definitely those three. That would definitely be a trio. It would probably end in most of us getting arrested. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm going for. Are you sure you want uh, Professor Layton? I feel like you'd just be like staring at your spaghetti for 30 minutes while you try to figure out uh, how many meatballs you have or something. <laughs> I'm sure there would be some sort of puzzle involving what was in the food before we ate it properly, but I don't think Bowser would really stand for that. He'd probably just starve it down anyway, and the puzzle would already be over. <laughs> so that would be that. See, it all balances out. Yeah, awesome. All right, good answer. Okay, 
All right, then. With that taken care of, we shall take an intermission, and then when we come back, we'll have this week's big topic, 30 Years of Capcom NES Classics. Alright, we are back and we are ready to discuss this week's big topic, which is the 30th anniversary of some Capcom classics. Obviously, being the 30th anniversary, we are talking about titles released back in 1989. And let me tell you, Pete, I don't really know what was in the water at Capcom back during that year, but whatever it was, it resulted in some really, really fantastic games. Some of the most stellar, most creative releases ever conceived, especially back in the 8-bit days. I'm talking specifically about Mega Man 2, Strider, and DuckTales for the NES. <laughs> yeah, those are some classics. Yes, yes they are. They were great then, they are still great now, and that is what we're going to talk about as this week's big topic. And I say that we started off by talking about Mega Man 2. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. So, of course, Mega Man 2, built upon its predecessor, took that formula and ran with it. And it basically improved upon the original Mega Man in every single imaginable way. Yeah, it really did. It had more detailed graphics. It had more stages. It had more weapons and a really great diversity of weapons that open themselves up to fun possibilities like crash bumps for destroying walls, the time stopper for stopping time, the bubble lead for traveling along floors and walls, and of course, the metal blade, which is the most useful weapon ever in probably the history of video games, alongside Contra's spread gun. Yeah, you showed me the hack, and uh, my life has never been the same since then. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. At one point you showed me at uh, Nintendo Power the art of getting the Metal Blade as soon as you possibly can and then just using it to tear up the rest of the game. <laughs> yes, yes indeed. I mean, some people claim that makes the game unbalanced. I totally disagree. I think it's just a matter of uh, using brains instead of just brawn. <laughs> nice. But yeah, it added these character portraits on the level select screen and those just looked really fantastic. It added that dramatic opening that you know, pans up the building, and you see Mega Man standing there on top, it had just such a great sense of, you know, sort of drama with that intro, and then that rockin' music yep. after it got to the top with Mega Man there. Even the brooding, like, intro, where it's like, you know, the music's a little slower. Right, right, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, with, you know, how it built up the drama like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it had those little weapon get-cut scenes after each level, and there were those additional tools for Mega Man, the items 1, 2, and 3 that he could use to help advance through the stages oh plus you know this add in the password feature which was not in the original game so that certainly helped with the difficulty balance a whole lot <laughs> right 
And then also everything post-game, you know, sort of once you've beat all the bosses and you're headed towards Dr. Wily. Yep, yep, all that stuff was really good too. I mean, I have sort of, you know, talked about this a whole lot recently. You know, on the last episode, I was gushing about the whole end game and the Dr. Wily transformation and stuff like that. So I was kind of wondering, Pete, what are the other things that stand out to you? What do you remember about the game? What do you think made it so great back at the time? I think similar to what you were saying uh, about the graphics just being improved, I think the levels just seem to come to life more. Yeah, totally. There's a lot more flourishes. You know, you're in like the uh, underwater level and you're seeing like the bubbles blowing and a lot of the enemies were just far more elaborate. A lot more like these robots come to life, robots simulating like real life creatures and all that. Yeah, actually it had, I mean, they weren't really that big, but at the time they seemed huge, like these really you know, massive enemies, right. which they aren't really massive, but they seem like they were massive in the 8-bit days 30 years ago, and they looked really, really cool. And obviously they were working some sort of, you know, technological magic where they're really probably, you know, backgrounds and not character sprites. But yeah, like the big robot dogs in Woodman stage, right. those big lanternfish in Bubbleman stage, and like, you know, that awesome dragon the first dr wiley level boss that's another one and that one really really stands out yeah there were some really really impressive and cool enemies in that game yeah and and the tank also towards dr wiley's level oh yeah the guts dozer the guts tank yep yeah that thing's awesome yeah that was another really really great one for me another part that really stood out was quick man's level and those instant kill laser beams that shoot out of the wall (laughs) it really did live up to the character's name you had to be quick to get through there And for me, that was probably the hardest part of the game, much harder than like the final boss. Yeah. I also think Mega Man 2 did a lot more balancing of difficulty. I think the first one was really good and hard, but uh, I think Mega Man 2 definitely, it kind of eases the learning curve a little bit more. It does. So I think that it is a little bit more approachable for the average gamer. Yeah, I mean, a big part of that is that the fact that it had two difficulty settings. It has the normal difficulty setting and then the hard difficulty setting. Uh. And hard is basically what I think the Japanese players got, and it's basically the equivalent to, like, Mega Man 1. So you play on normal, and it's like, okay, yeah, I'm playing on normal. This is great. But it's actually, you know, been made a little bit easier and thus a lot more approachable and enjoyable for that matter. Yeah, totally. I mean, a lot of people would still say it's very, very hard, but, uh, you know, give a little practice in normal mode. You'll be able to uh, get through it, uh, no trouble. Yeah, and then I know we mentioned the soundtrack in the beginning, but uh, just the soundtrack in general. Yes, yes, absolutely. Just super inspiring. And, you know, I think a lot of video game uh, composers today probably still look to that as being one of the pinnacles of that generation. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly agree with that. The Crashman music is some of my favorite, and, you know, Almost everybody loves that Dr. Wily theme. I remember you asking me, Pete, once if I had the choice of being deaf or hearing nothing but that Mega Man <laughs> 2 Dr. Wily music for the rest of my life, which one would I pick? And of course, I went with the Dr. Wily music. That's what uh, nemesis tend to ask each other. <laughs> but yeah, it just all came together really, really well. I mean, as the story goes, Capcom wasn't really even intending to do a sequel. So it was kind of a passion project. From the developers, they were sort of doing it in sort of their off hours and extra time in the office. And it just came out beautifully. And that's what really made Mega Man become a series and a franchise and a property that we are all still enjoying to this day. Uh, And, you know, it's amazing that it comes from such sort of humble roots. Yeah. And I almost wonder, like, I would love to know the stories about, like, how did they come up with the bosses? Because those are just, like, so random. 
Well, a lot of the bosses actually came from Japanese users. And I think that started with Mega Man 2. I mean, I think they had most of the game already figured out, but I believe they put out a call to the fans, and the fans sent in some ideas, and those ideas were refined into the bosses that we got today. I mean, I can't swear that that was still the case in Mega Man 2. It might have started after that, but I think it had. I believe that was indeed the case in that game. So, yeah, when uh, Capcom's like, okay, we all know, just go, hey, let's turn to the fans, and they'll come up with something cool and crazy, and indeed they did. Yeah, I mean, they really, they are obscure. Like, if I sat down and, like, came up with, like, you know, eight bosses, I'd be like, um, you know, let's see, we have a, a ground guy <laughs> and a air guy, but uh, I guess they do have an air guy. There is an air guy. But I do, I, th- I think they're just so random, right? Like, it's like... It's not like what you'd expect. Well, I see what you're saying. I think they were, you know, fairly normal in this one. You know, they had a, a water guy, an air guy, a fire guy, but uh, you know, maybe Metal Man's a little bit off the beaten path. Well, and like and there's Wood a quick Man, guy, yeah. Mm, I don't like, know. like they're not all. They don't all fit the same category. It's true. It's true. They definitely diversified from the elemental attributes that were sort of established in the first Mega Man game. You're not wrong about that. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway, anyhow that you look at it, it certainly, in my opinion, still holds up to this day and remains, I would say, my favorite game on the NES. Wow. Yeah, it's definitely up there on my list. However, that was not the only great game that Capcom released back in 1989. I should mention, by the way, 1989 was only the North American release date for Mega Man 2. It actually came out in 88 in Japan. Nonetheless, the big topic still holds. Let us move along to Strider. This is you know, a very different type of game from Mega Man 2 in a lot of respects. The interesting thing about Strider is that it was actually designed as like a multimedia property. So there was a manga tie-in, and there were two very distinct games developed, the NES game and the arcade game. And so while both games starred this Strider character named Hiryu, who's a ninja-like member of a secret organization, the gameplay was totally different. Mm, wait, I can't hear you. Ha 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 ha, I see what you did there. <laughs> anyway, the arcade version is rather renowned. It's known for its acrobatic action and its crazy bosses, and it got an amazing port on the Genesis that did eventually come to a Wii Virtual Console. But the NES game, you know, in my opinion, is very, very good as well. This game actually had a great emphasis on story and political intrigue, and as hear you, you travel to these hotspots around the globe to try to uncover this vast conspiracy about some sort of mind control technology. The story was kind of poorly translated. It was kind of hard to tell you know, exactly who was talking <laughs> and what was going on. But it involves a lot of conspiracies and betrayals and a depth that was kind of not very common in NES games back then. Also, what was cool about it is you got to visit these various global locales such as China, Japan, Russia, Africa, Australia, and Egypt. And I thought that one was especially cool, particularly when you got to first run across this moving train and then explore the inside of a giant pyramid. Yeah, those are definitely both memorable. What is it about the game that stands out for you, Pete? <laughs> well, I think this sounds funny, but uh, I remember the box art more than anything. yeah the box art was definitely interesting yeah i was never really sure what was going on because the guy (laughs) in the box art you know didn't really look like the strider in the game you know the strider in the game was much more ninja-like this just kind of looked like some sort of angry dude in his striped pajamas struggling to grab his sword maybe it was a little bit weird (laughs) yeah um but i think that was kind of par for the course with most of capcom's box art in the late 80s yeah you're not wrong there 
yeah, I'm not really sure what was going on there, but it, yeah, it looks like maybe the protagonist is like got a sword and he's swinging at a guy who looks like a Russian stormtrooper with, you know, his sleeves not on. <laughs> I don't know. There, there's some interesting stuff going on. Yeah, the box art is uh, a little bit uh, curious. I won't deny it. In fact, you know, I will say there are things about this game that are somewhat of an acquired taste. <laughs> I mean, when you first start playing this game, I can see why you might not like it. It's very easy to die very quickly, and the controls could take some getting used to, especially the jumping. A lot of times it was beneficial to jump and then push to the side rather than to be pushing the side while jumping and kind of learning the nuances of that and how to play through the game. did have a bit of a learning curve. There was also this wall spring jump, and even now I don't think I've ever quite mastered that. <laughs> it was really cool when you actually pulled it off and could bounce from wall to wall, but figuring out how to do it, yeah, that could be a bit of a trick as well. Still, when all that stuff did click and you finally learned how things were working, the game became really, really fun. It does actually have a lot of Metroid-like elements, so you would return to areas with new keys or items, like you could get magnet boots that let you walk up walls, or water-walking boots, which obviously let you walk on water. <laughs> or you'd find new clues that unlock new areas, you'd learn new skills that would let you do things like heal yourself, or shoot plasma bolts from your weapon, and then actually just your main weapon, I think that was one of the coolest, most standout features of Strider, whether you're talking about this version, or the arcade version, or whatever. I mean, it was basically just a sword, but the way it was drawn made it look like just a slashing blur, and it just seemed really, really cool, and there's really nothing else like it, especially back then. Yeah, you're right, and a lot of the graphics in general in this game just seem to stand out. You know, they're, they were really trying to do a lot on the NES, and uh, yes. you know, I think that some of it worked, and it honestly influenced some of the future games that came after this. Yeah, I mean, I think you are absolutely right there. I think the game was very, very ambitious, probably a little bit too ambitious. I mean, as we know, the whole multimedia thing didn't really pay off, and <laughs> a lot of the features in the game, like I said, they are a bit of an acquired taste and aren't necessarily very intuitive. But once you do get them figured out, the game just becomes a whole lot of fun. And, you know, in my mind, it's just really too bad that the only re-release this game has ever gotten was on the Capcom Classics Minimix on Game Boy Advance. <laughs> I'd love to see this game somehow make it to modern consoles or maybe even like this full, you know, Strider Classics collection with all of the iterations of the series throughout the years on Switch. That would be pretty darn awesome. But yeah, even if you have, you know, kind of heard, oh, you know, don't worry about the NES version, the arcade or Genesis version is where it's at. I do think this game is absolutely worth your time. If you put some time in with the game, I think you'll really learn to appreciate all of its nuances. Yeah, hopefully someday it will come out on something we can all get our hands on pretty much. For sure. Then after that, later in the year, that was when Capcom released DuckTales for the NES. Woo! Yeah, for sure. Was this a favorite of yours, Pete? DuckTales absolutely was, and it didn't hurt that it was in high popularity on television at the time. I can't say that was really a big influence on me. I wasn't really a fan of the cartoon, to tell you the truth. But I was a big fan of Capcom, and that's what drew me to this title, as well as the fact that it was on the cover of Nintendo Power. That certainly didn't hurt either. Yeah, for some reason, you know, pre-internet, this game was the talk of the town. I remember it definitely being all of a sudden like, wow, this game is really good. So what is it that stood out for this one for you? Well, I think similar to Strider, what you were talking about earlier, is that there was all these different locations you could go to. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a new mechanic that you could choose what level you wanted to go to, but the fact that you could go to these different exotic locations, you know, and like 
they really played to the theme, you know, almost like a Disney theme park, including like awesome bosses. It just kind of had this really playful feel and it made you want to like really explore the entire game and, you know, check the entire thing out. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Although for me, the feeling wasn't so much this is like a Disney theme park or more like Strider. My thought was going back to Mega Man because obviously that's something about Mega Man. You can choose which of the six or eight bosses you're going to fight. And while it didn't really make a difference in DuckTales, there was no reason to go to one level instead of another. It was, I think, a big part of the appeal. And the fact that it had all these themed levels based on the Amazon, that's the location, not the pro wrestler. <laughs> Transylvania, African Mines, Antarctica, and even the moon, you know, really did just make it seem really cool. You could check all these excellent places. And it certainly didn't hurt that no matter where you went, you got a pretty darn rockin' soundtrack. <laughs> totally. And also, you know, the gameplay mechanic in this game was really unique for um, a game back on the NES. Well, I mean, in a sense it was. I mean, when it all boils down to it, it's kind of similar to Mario, you just, you know, sort of jumping on enemies, right? But the way it was presented with this pogo jump right. really did make it seem like something different and unique and cool, and it was different enough to make it stand out and stand on its own. Yeah, that, and you get to kind of tee off on blocks and things like that. So you can... <laughs> yeah, uh. you could, although you know, I remember when I first started playing the game, I was expecting that I would just you know walk up to enemies or obstacles and use this golf swing but it really doesn't factor into the game that much like if you're just standing there and you hit the b button you'd expect you'd maybe do an attack or something right. but nothing comes out you actually have to like press up against a block or a tree stump for maybe a second then hit the button and then you swing and then okay maybe something will happen but <laughs> at first i was really perplexed by that mechanic like why why can't you just attack there's no attack button what kind of game is this yeah and the fact that the way you do the pogo jump was by jumping, then hitting down, then hitting B. Like, for me, in 1989, my little child brain was blown. <laughs> like, this is too complicated. How do you play a game like this? So, yeah. at first, I was kind of weirded out by DuckTales, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I played it recently, and I was thinking the same thing. Like, wow, these controls are very broken. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if broken is the word, right. but they were unnecessarily complex. Right, it's just strange. And, you know, I got used to them before too terribly long, but uh, yeah, if you're a newcomer, it's like, whoa, whoa this, is, this is a lot to master all at once. <laughs> well, and it's also just strange in general when you pick up a controller that only has two buttons, and neither of them are doing an attack. <laughs> right, right. It's like, huh? But again, you know, it ends up being kind of like Mario. You pounce on the enemies with your pogo jump to squash them flat. And yeah, the way that was implemented in the game, even if it was a little hard to control, was done really well. You could use it not only to kill the bad guys, but to smash obstacles below you, to traverse dangerous terrain. Like if there was a pit of spikes, you could actually just pogo jump over the spikes to get across it. And you could use the extra jump height generated by the pogo jump to reach secret new areas. So it ended up being super fun once I got a hang of it. Yeah. I'll also say that just being a licensed game, you know, I don't think I really knew this at the time, but, uh, you know, a lot of licensed games on the NES didn't turn out to be so hot, but there was actually <laughs> a pretty good percentage of games that were. Well, I mean, it was kind of like this. If it was by a company called LJN, it was probably going to suck. If it was by Capcom, there's a good chance it was going to be good. Or maybe even Konami with uh, Goonies 2 or something like that. That's true, that's true. 
But uh, yes, they did do a great job with the license. And even though that wasn't part of the appeal to me, you know, I was, you know, at an age where, you know, I was a kid like I'm too cool for Disney or something like that. You know, they did do a really good job incorporating all of the characters and really the look. They nailed the look of the cartoon pretty darn good for an 8-bit game. Yeah, because you really think about it. It's like it's not easy to do a sprite that looks good for some of the characters in this game. But uh, they really did do them justice. Yeah, Capcom really pulled it off. Uh, another thing I love about the game is just how non-linear and exploration-focused all the levels are. You know, it was all about... Uh, looking around and collecting and the more money you found the better ending you got for the game i mean Mm -hmm. it didn't really make that much of a difference it was like you know one little screen and your money pile would be a little bit bigger if you got a certain (laughs) amount of money but still just the fact that you could explore and find all these different secrets or extra lives or hidden passages it was just really really fun because the levels were so well made and the gameplay mechanics were so well designed and so you know it all just came together to be something that was really really fun Yeah, I remember sitting around playing this game with friends and watching them try to play through a level and then, you know, ultimately they would die or complete it or something and then we'd try a different level and just the ability to kind of jump between the levels and really try and, you know, explore them as far as you could was really fun back in the day. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. It was just basically the ultimate combination of level design and gameplay mechanics and art and uh, music, you know, I can't really emphasize the music enough. I know we touched on it already, but again, you know, that moon music obviously has sort of become legendary, but all the tunes in the game, you know, the Himalayas music, the Amazon music, they're all just really, really good. Yeah, Capcom was doing something really amazing back with their music back at that time. And I don't think it was the same people that made Mega Man 2, but between the art style, the level select, and the way that the music sounded, it really felt like it could have been coming from the Mega Man team. So, yeah, that DNA from these other great Capcom games seemed to really intermingle between all of them. Yeah, they really seemed to nail it. Indeed. Of course, this game was re-released a couple of years ago as part of the Disney Afternoon Collection. Why that hasn't come to Switch is beyond me. <laughs> I think that Capcom is just, you know, throwing away free money there or disney for that matter (laughs) um i would also happily take a switch version of ducktales remastered i mean that came out on wii u but obviously it's not on the current generation of systems so uh disney capcom if you put that out there once again i will happily throw money at you couldn't you get back on launchpad's vehicle and just go back like if you wanted to not finish the level or something you could. There were a couple of options for that. You could find a launch pad within the level, and he would take you back and let you, you know, store all the money you had acquired should, you know, the, the worst happen. That's a pretty forward thinking for that time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was no way to permanently save your game or anything like that. Once you turned <laughs> off the power, you know, right. that was it. There was no battery save or password or anything. But yeah, sometimes if you had, like, the right digits in your score... It would take you to this little mini game where you go through this little platforming segment in the clouds collecting money and like chasing after Launchpad or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, I do so, remember that. Yep, it had lots of good and innovative and fun ideas in there. And yes, they were great back in 1989. I would say that they all still hold up very well now, 30 years later. Uh, Mega Man 2, Strider, and DuckTales, all great games. And, you know, I think they've all gone on to cement Capcom's legacy as one of the greatest developers of our time. Yeah, and I think you're right. There must have been something in the water. (laughs) That's the only explanation. (laughs) 
All right. I think that takes care of our big topic for this week. And that means it is just about time for us to wrap up the show. But before we do, we do have time for one more thing. And that is a dramatic reading. Yes. This time, appropriately enough, it is a print ad from 1989 featuring Capcom's new releases from the day, Strider and Mega Man 2. Stand by, gamers. Capcom introduces two new thrilling games to its Nintendo series. And as always, the graphics are hot and the action intense. First, experience the ultimate character adventure game. As Mega Man, you must conquer and control the eight empires of the evil Dr. Wily. But beware of his sinister robots that rule each empire. Their special powers present a unique challenge at every level. Then, prepare for undercover action as the Strider. Your orders are to enter Russia and infiltrate the Red Army, returning enemy secrets to your superiors. But be extremely cautious. You know what the Russians do to spies. <laughs> so get set for radical action in these exciting additions to the Nintendo Entertainment System. From Capcom USA. <laughs> You know, it's funny how much better that holds up than a lot of, like, current things on the eShop. <laughs> well, you're not really wrong, but on the other hand, Strider is not about entering Russia and infiltrating the Red <laughs> Army and discovering secrets. I mean, yes, Russia is the first level you visit, but beyond that, it's really nothing about that. And every time... Capcom would write about Mega Man back then and talk about infiltrating the empires. It's like, oh my gosh, have they even played this game? Do they know what they're talking about? It's pretty bad. I don't know. It's like the people they got to write these ads and the manuals and the back-of-the-box copy just like, you know, had the vaguest idea of what they were writing. Right. They clearly had not even seen these screenshots that are here right. in this uh, advertisement I'm looking at either. I don't know what's going on. I have a feeling that they just hired some copywriters that were like maybe they wrote a book or something <laughs> didn't really play video games uh, because the copy is well written but it's just not really like anyone who's played the game yeah and of course the tagline for the entire advertisement is get set for radical action <laughs> in the 80s there was a lot of radical action going on <laughs> i think my favorite thing though in the whole thing is the the graphics are hot and the action intense <laughs> Hey, they're not wrong. <laughs> what, what? I don't even think I've ever referred to graphics as hot. <laughs> have you? I don't think I have either, but to each their own, I guess. <laughs> but I, I might I might start from now on. <laughs> yes, you probably should. I think we both should. Oh, man. Hoffman, these graphics are hot. Totally, dude. <laughs> I also forgot to tell you, my other favorite part was you know what the Russians do to the spies. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what do Russians do to spies? I don't know. Uh, I don't know, but hey, that was, you know, the... Well, actually, it wasn't. Was, wasn't, like, the Cold War already over by that point? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it almost sounds, like, slanderous, really, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, the games are great, but the advertising copy is ridiculous. Anyway, that does it for this week's episode of the show. As always, you can find us at powerpros.podbean.com, and you can follow us at PowerProsPod on both Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me, The Hoff, on Twitter at ChrisTheHoff, and you can find Pete at BurlyRedYeti. 
You can email us at powerprospod at gmail.com. And if you like the podcast, of course, it would be great if you told your friends about us. Thanks for listening, everybody. For myself, Pete Mashad. The graphics are hot. And our friend Gregor from Fire Emblem Awakening. Do not forget Gregor. We will see you next time.